Hello everyone, Tom here. Um, just before we start off this lovely second part of an interview with Peaches Christ on the iconic divine, I just want to flag up that I make a massive error in the realms of uh, makeup uh, between two films at one point. I'm sure it'd be very easy for you to spot. Um, and frankly, if you've ever seen me in real life or in pictures, you will know that makeup is not my speciality unsurprisingly. And basically, Peaches is the kind, considerate uh, expert we all know her to be, and uh, picks me up on it, and I was very embarrassed. Um, so I'm just flagging it up top, just basically hold my hands up, um, and essentially say I got confused between uh, two looks. Peaches rightly corrects me on it, and um, I've been embarrassed about it ever since. Uh, lesson learned, don't get a straight cis man to do a drag queen's job. But otherwise, hope uh, you enjoy this second part. Love you all. Bye. You're going to see the interview everyone is going to be talking about. Wagon wheel, what to see? What do I think of her? Yes. I don't think of her. Then we become divas as opposed to just strong women. Oh, coughing during my interview, really? It feels... Uh, so we literally stopped working on this concept because it was now is not time for this. No, yeah. I think it's a lot of people have so, no trouble. Yeah. And then imagine yeah. like uh, the idea of a senator like act who actually believes that lasers came down from the moon <laughs> and set the California fires alight is yeah. a John Waters film. Like there's yeah. this like, yeah. or at least something. It's beyond satire. Yeah, it's like Ed Wood. It's beyond, it's beyond yeah. what he would, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. He was able to, and, and maybe later, because I think he so brilliantly was able to address, like he couldn't have made Hairspray while um, segregation was a thing, right? Yeah. He couldn't make a movie. While, so I said to Shantaine, we're living this, we now's not the time. Yeah. We have to do it later. Give it's it 20 so years. weird. Yeah, it is weird. yeah, yeah. What a strange time for creativity in general, isn't it? When you're kind of like, I, I must yeah. create something. I must make something out of this. But you're like, when we're all swamped the way we are, it's so mm -hmm. difficult. Yeah. Oh well, thank you yeah. so much, Josh. It's just so lovely to see you again, sure. and thank you so much sure. for giving us your time. We just, oh, we're thrilled. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, hello and welcome to Big Diva Energy, the podcast for and about fabulous people being fucking excellent. I'm Holly Morgan and my husband Tom is also here. All ratted up like a teenage Jezebel. And we are joined again by the glorious, the magnificent Peaches Christ for part deux of our deep diva into the life of divine. Peaches, thank you so much for joining us again, darling. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. Once again, one of my favorite subjects. Yes. I could talk for hours. <laughs> we are <laughs> so lucky to have a, a world authority <laughs> to talk to. It's so exciting. Thank you so much. And if you haven't listened to part one, I mean, go back and get, get the part one under your belts before you, because we're going to go deep today. Um, so we just covered the, the early years of Divine, and now we're going to pick up in around uh, about 1968. We're going with Eat Your Makeup. But first, I wanted to just to touch base, Peaches, about how you have this amazing work ethic and you create work for your friends and your collaborators. And you, you have this sort of this um, hub around you of, of, of co-workers, which is amazing. And I wondered, did you get that from John Waters? Was that watching how he how he fashioned his work? Definitely John Waters and that whole uh, Dreamlanders community yeah. and concept. Um 
was inspirational to me. I also think that I just, as a kid, was always, well, like a, a bit of a, a group leader. Like I just naturally wanted to be, you know, sort of the 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 ringmaster of, um, <laughs> you know, the weirdos and the freaks. And I I wouldn't say that it was in a in sort of an assertive way. It was almost like no one else was stepping up to do the job. Yeah. So, you know, like, okay, everybody, let's put on a show, you know? So I've been that way from the time I was a, a kid. And certainly I think John Waters, I mean, I know that John obviously uh, was very inspired by Andy Warhol's, you know, factory mm-hmm. concept. But what I love about John is he actually took it and turned it into more of a Hollywood studio. Yeah. Rather, yes. rather than, yeah, rather than an art workshop. It's like he actually kind of, you know, became, you know, an MGM of freaks, you know, which yeah. which to me is really inspiring. Yeah. I wonder if there's something in the look of the look that he cultivated and stuff, because he's got that kind of like old Hollywood producer kind of look, but he's almost sort of like taken it and kind of twisted it a little yeah. bit and been like John Waters, yeah, it's like a completely different thing to what you expect from that kind of yeah, like sort of Golden, it, golden age impresario yeah. kind of yeah it's quite it's quite fun in that sense absolutely i'm a hundred percent sure that his look the mustache the clothes the fashion of course you know they evolved over the years yeah. but that that was all intentional yeah. no doubt a hundred percent and he smartly uh created his own costume his own drag his own i mean again andy warhol did it with hair and yeah. a wig and you know so he looked at people like that but i love the way he did it because it is really like a throwback there's a little vincent price thrown yes. in there you know there's there's there, it's always it's always modern but also vintage um it's it's punk and also preppy you know it's yeah. really a, a specific thing that he has curated that's just very john waters and what I've said to people is, you know, John, when when he and I go out in San Francisco, he doesn't uh, ever get to take off his drag because his drag mm. is is who he is now. Yeah. So that iconic mustache, the clothes, you know, everything, you know, whereas I'm um, in, in, in I can go anywhere and not yeah. be known. But in San Francisco, where people actually know who Peaches Christ is, you know, he and I can go out and I don't get recognized you know, hardly at all. Mm. Um, but John can't go anywhere and, you know, anywhere interesting. Should yeah. not be <laughs> I was my, my only brush with John Waters. I think I might have told you this story last week. I'm not sure I did, but I once sold him a book. Um, he was in, uh-huh. he was in the bookshop for the, um, for the, um, oh God, what's the name of the, um, Oh, the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Art. Uh, so I used to work uh, as one of the people that stands around the exhibits and just make sure that you don't touch them and stuff. And But I was working in the bookshop and he came through and he bought a book from me. Amazing. But it was exactly that. It was just like the moment he walked through the door and he didn't get mobbed, which you would have expected at somewhere like the ICA. Yeah. But like, he was just right. sort of quietly like browsing and stuff and no one bothered him. But it was just the moment he walked in, you went, oh my God, oh, oh my God it's there, he there he is. There he is. Like, right. And you yeah, just yeah, couldn't yeah. miss course. him. And so presumably there's quite yeah. a lot of people doing the quiet, like, oh, I'm also looking at books, but really looking at you, yeah. like sort of thing. Whereas you have that sort of, you have like a sort of screen between you yeah. and Peaches, which kind of protects you from that kind of mobbing, I guess, or... Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one, I'm not anywhere nearly as, you know, well known, but also uh, it's, I think, intentional that I 
offstage can be quite introverted. Mm. Um, and, and I don't really like a lot of attention. You know, if I go to a party and, you know, I'll, I'll sit back and observe. Um, and I usually will let other drag queens, you know, my friend Hecklina, there, you know, there are other people who will step up and kind of even out of drag, you know, entertain everyone. And I'll kind mm. of wait my turn and tell a story when it's time. Um, and I would say that John is, you know, in person, um, I don't think he needs to be the center of attention at all, but I think he also smartly knows he is the center of attention. So <laughs> he confidently will walk through the world knowing that all these eyes are on him. But there's this sort of confidence that I think prevents people from kind of mobbing him or approaching him. You know, he takes Muni in San Francisco like, I don't take Muni, you know what I mean? Like it's it's the bus system. It is it is notoriously late. It's full of, you know, um, insanity and, you know, he loves it. And, you know, it's like you get, you get on Muni and pay your, you know, $2 or whatever and you can ride all around San Francisco and you can be attacked. You can be, you can see things you've never, you know. Th and so like the fact that he takes Muni um, and he earnestly enjoys it. He would prefer that to a private car, like a Lyft or an Uber, you know, yeah. um, he kind of says it all. Like he wants to be in the trenches still. He's inspired by people. He, you know, he's, um, he's not, he doesn't, for all the fancy accolades he's received, he's never turned earnestly pretentious, right? Sure. It would be so easy. You know, here's a guy who can exist in the highest of art worlds and the lowest. Yeah. And he really does. That duality is so interesting, isn't it? And that's what makes him such an interesting artist, isn't it? That he's he's commenting on pop culture now from a place where he kind of is pop culture, which is so interesting. Mm -hmm. But he still wants to keep those roots and, and yeah, and like get the stories that he was originally telling as well, which is so interesting. Yeah, so... No Eat your makeup, uh, divine portraying Jackie Kennedy, <laughs> restaging the assassination. I mean, most people agreed it was too soon. <laughs> right. And and then the following and final would the the sixteen millimeter short, the Diane Linkletter story again, sort of improvising the retelling of the true story. What what do you reckon of this 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 choice of sub subject matters? Kind of iconoclastic choices they were making. I, you know, I think it's really important that young people put themselves in the shoes of the the people that did this at the time. Yeah. You know, because for me, as, so, as a person who discovered it years later or um, read about John's fascination, you know, with Charles Manson or mm -hmm. whatever, you, you can't, it, it's like, it's already become pop culture. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's, it's not the same. So I always say, when I taught a film class, I would say, Imagine a week after 9-11, you know, making a movie that kind of makes fun of 9-11. Like that's the level right. like we're talking about as far as the world, the way the public saw the assassination of JFK. Hmm. You know, it was so so this is this is as um nasty and as punk rock mm -hmm. and in your face as it can get. Now, I think what's also great about John is that over the years, he would be the first to tell you, I wouldn't do that again. Yeah. I think I was very immature. You know, I you know, I, I really love in his book, Role Models, where he goes into his relationship with Leslie Van Warren and the Manson girls yeah. and his obsession with Charles Manson and recognizes how wildly inappropriate it was. <laughs> and, you know, and 
really addresses where these things come from. Because as young people, we think we know it all, but we don't, and we're really immature. And so one of the ways we um, react to things that are horrifying is to trivialize them, Yeah. yeah. right? So, um, you know, I, I think he was, um, what I love about it is that he got out there and he did it and he wasn't afraid of a reaction. Yeah. Um, I also love that he, he, as a, as an older artist would say, yeah, that was, that was pretty wrong. Yeah. You know, mm. I love that ability to admit that, yeah, it was, it was a wrong call, especially about the Mansons. I think we were talking about this before, but like, they didn't know, they didn't know they'd done it. <laughs> like it was happening as it yeah. was unfolding. And to be on the, yeah. to be that punk rock, they were like, let's just go and make a film about it. It's so, mm. like, you wouldn't get that now. A, because you wouldn't be able to pull together the resources to make a film that quickly. Um, and no one would have the balls. No. Well, and you would be canceled. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. that's the other thing. You know, you would be canceled. You'd be risking everything. I mean, let's face it. Kathy Griffin was canceled for mockingly holding the severed head of Donald Trump, who wasn't dead, who yeah. hadn't been assassinated. Yeah. You know, like nothing, you know, it was art. It was, it was symbolic. Yeah. It was in the fact that she was, I mean, really truly canceled, you know, yeah. by the end, you know, all of her gigs were taken away. Everyone canceled her. And, you know, I look back on that now and I actually tweeted about it the other day. Cause I'm like, here the Republicans are defending an insurrection and we on the left we canceled kathy griffin so like to me it enrages me Mm. i feel like we're really as progressives we really have our priority out of whack you know same aforementioned senator who talks about lasers from from mars or lasers from the moon a called for democrats to be executed yeah like call for their execution like on it's like that i don't know maybe Maybe the left's idea is, you know, don't play, what is it, an eye for an eye. But I don't know. Like, it's just kind of, you've got to defend yourself. Right. Yeah. But one thing is clearly art. Yeah. You know, and uh, and, and satire and comedy. And yeah, it's in your face, but it's Kathy Griffin, a comedian. The other thing is a politician calling for the execution of other politicians. Like, what? So. You know, it, it is really bizarre that we've gotten to this place. Um, and I think with John, you know, and a lot of the filmmakers I admire my, and, and my stuff in the early days, yeah. I mean, I have to walk on eggshells a little bit more these days. I mean, I'm very clear about the fact that, um, you know, I don't have a problem uh, criticizing the church or, you know, making light of religion. I mean, that's been all wrapped up in my whole thing. Um, but I think now uh, all of us are a bit more cautious with our comedy because, you know, you don't want to be misinterpreted. You don't want to be canceled. Um, and, and also you just don't want to deal with it because yeah. you you have to then your work becomes defending your work rather than just being able to create more stuff. Mm. Yeah. And there's much more permanence as well. Right. You know, when, when the, we're talking about these 16 millimeter films that were out of print for years and you know no one could find it he probably yeah, yeah had a different attitude to now mm-hmm. when like everything lives on the internet forever right 
That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we are talking more about John and less about Divine, oh, yes. who has so far tackled two great brunette icons of female beauty, Jackie O and Liz Taylor. So her next role in Waters' first feature, Mondo Trasho, is as a blonde. Waters helps Divine craft her image, suggesting something strange and extravagant for her appearance, which included Divine shaving her hairline back to the middle of her head and wearing wildly drawn eye makeup by artist Van Smith. Peaches. Is it possible to overstate how important that look is? Okay, so I think what we're doing, did we skip Mondo Trasho? No, we're just talking about Mondo Trasho now, yeah, so. Uh, okay, because her Mondo Trasho look is more like a, a ratty, hard front Jane Mansfield wig. Yeah. And the makeup's not as enormous. So the way you were describing it, I would yeah. thought you were talking about her character in Pink Flamingos. Oh no, sorry. Um, that's all right. That's all right. I'm. That's how anal I, I am. I love it. This is fine. so exciting. Well, no, talk us through the transition. How yes, she moved from yeah. one to the other. Then, right. So, um, I think in yeah, Mondo Trasho, like the look is so sloppy, you know, and and, and it's such a it's sort it is it is Trasho, um, and Divine is, uh, I think in a way the loose fitting costume, the ill fitting costume, and the bad wig, and the 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 sort of make bizarre makeup. Um, is so great because what you realize is that Divine, the the actor, the performer, just rises above all that. So she doesn't have the kick-ass, couture, perfect eye makeup and hair design and costume the way she does in Pink Flamingos, mm-hmm. you know, where every look is just so great. And Van mm-hmm. Smith has really honed it all in. Yeah. But what she does do is give a performance in Mondo Trasho that is captivating. So you don't care that her, you know, costume isn't very good or that the wig is terrible or whatever. <laughs> you know, her facial expression sells everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about when uh, John Waters gets arrested during the filming of this for, for public nudity? Um, and, yeah. and Divine beats the rat by running away, I believe, <laughs> like just legging it out of there. Um, and how he got out of beating the rap was by screening his shorts, by proving that he wasn't a perverted p- uh, pornographer. He was an artist. I mean, I wasn't aware there was a difference, but I love that we celebrate <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that story is just so legendary and right? so, you know, so perfectly Maryland. And, you know, they were on um, the, you know, the famous Johns Hopkins, you know, campus, you know, doing that stuff. So it's like, you know, they they could have maybe, you know, gone someplace a little more discreet. Um, but, you know, they're in this, you know, very uh, well monitored campus uh, with with a naked hitchhiker. So, yeah, that I love that story. And, you know, Mink Mink was arrested, too. Was Mink as part of that. Well. Oh my gosh! They they went they went to her apartment, and she was taking a bath. No, they went and they found yeah they found everyone that was affiliated. So Mink was also arrested. So it was like this whole deal. And I think Divine might have been the only one that kind of escaped it somehow. Right, run away, the running away and <laughs> hiding. <laughs> How long did she have to hide, hide for? I mean, that is <laughs> long enough. I, I don't know. <laughs> but it was if they were going around and rounding everyone up, like it must have been a fair amount of time. The court case was quite yeah, a while mink, after the, as well. Yeah. Yeah, the Mink story. Like I, I'd known Mink for years before one day, uh, she just started talking about it, and I'm like. Oh my God, what do you mean you were in the bathtub and the police showed up because of Mondo Trash Show? 
And she was like, oh yeah, you know, like we were all rounded up and, you know, I was brought down to the station and I'm like, so we, of course now I include it. And in, whenever we do our show, our cabaret show, I make yeah. sure that we cover that part of her story. Oh, yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, so I love that. Kind of, so there's a synthesis, isn't there, between like the divines deliberately kind of like sloppy, just like this is this is my version of a trashy woman, and we're just gonna do this scene here now because this is where we are, and I'm doing it here, and I don't give a shit. <laughs> it's, it's that it's right. that punk rock, isn't it? It's, um, and it gets divine critically noticed. So the Los Angeles Free Press declared that the 300-pound sex symbol divine is undoubtedly some sort of discovery. Ugh, I mean, there's quite a lot to unpick there, isn't there? With like some sort and the press creating a kind of false juxtaposition between 300-pound and sex symbol. Like, like those two things can't possibly right. go together. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we view drag through a very different lens now. And I think uh -huh. back then, mm. this was an era where like, freak shows still existed. Right. You could go see a freak show in Times Square, you know, and, and you know, see, um, you know, little people and women who had facial hair and, you know, th like these sort of oddities. And I think with John and Divine, they kind of realized that there was this freakish aspect to drag, yeah. you know, and then, you know, the fact that they weren't doing it this sort of traditional gay way, you know, where where you would have a, a thinner um, person imper trying to pass themselves off as a beautiful woman, yeah. but to have a large, luscious, larger than life. So I think in a way they probably knew, they probably liked that sort of review, you yeah, know. Yeah, right. Yeah, because, I mean, Divine... I said it to NPR in 1988, I think John wanted a very large woman because he wanted the exact opposite of what normally would be beautiful. So yeah, exactly, exactly what you were saying. And yeah, and she said, I've been called inflated Jane Mansfield. So it's like, and Jane Mansfield, was, right. you know, was a voluptuous beauty as well. It's like to just turn that up to 11 and get that even more yeah. heightened, inflated aesthetic. It's amazing. Divine's conservative parents, who had no idea what he was up to, uh, had bought him his own beauty shop in Towson in an attempt to curb his extravagance. However, Divine had refused to be involved in the management of it. <laughs> <laughs> in the summer of 1968, he'd moved out of his parental home and in 1970 gave up hairdressing altogether, opening a vintage clothing store, Divine Trash, in Provincetown, uh, Massachusetts, using his parents' money. Uh, Peaches, you spent a lot of time in Provincetown. Are you able to tell us a bit about the house that you and Trixie Mattel rented in Provincetown? It's dark history. <laughs> well, my gosh. Well, yeah, so Provincetown, as you know, is uh, uh, notorious for uh, decades for artists and freaks and weirdos um, going and 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 doing um, work there and also living there. Um, and so Trixie, Mattel, uh, and I were doing, we were each doing shows separately. She was doing a show at one venue and I was doing a show at another venue. Um, and now that Provincetown has been really properly gentrified, mm. it's very expensive to find a place. It's not like the late 60s, early 70s when John and Mink will happily tell you of all the places they lived for no money. Yeah. You know, now you have to have a lot of money <laughs> and make a lot of money. And so Trixie and I were roommates in this house. Um, and I guess I guess we thought it might be haunted. I, I remember talking to her about it. And um, we left that summer and found out later that this house was part of um, what they call this murder house uh, because there was these this this violent tweaker murder 
in the house that that was attached to our house um where a guy basically holed up in, a, in an apartment with another guy and uh well it ends with one of them cutting up the other one and stuffing him in a closet and then continuing to live there oh so God. there's a whole like weird documentary about it on youtube oh, people are interested if you google like tweaker provincetown murder yeah. you know i think you'll, you'll find it and then when you watch it the the house right next to the one they'll show you is the one that that's Trixie right. and i live in so were you yeah. just sort of sat there going, ooh, there's, there's a bit of a, there's a weird vibe yeah. here. And then next thing you know, you're like, oh, hang on. Kind of. And then the, this is so jerky, but like the next year, these guys from this group, Well Strung, lived in the house that we rented. And I lived somewhere else. And, um, and Trixie didn't come back that summer for some reason. Um, and so the guys from Well Strung, actually one of them said to me, you know, did you ever notice anything weird when you and Trixie lived there? And he didn't know about the murder. So I led him down this whole, you know, yes. thing where I said yes and convinced him it was haunted, then pointed out the murder. And, you know, and then his roommates came to me and they were like, you need to stop. He is freaking out. Like, you got to stop this, you know. So I was, it was maybe, maybe my practical joke went a little too far. So you doubled down, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I showed up at night and was, scratching the windows yeah absolutely <laughs> how could you resist how could you not <laughs> yeah. okay so multiple maniacs in 1970 a batshit anti-hippie subversion of the peace and love era um i mean how, i don't i, I kind of know that you love every film so much so i just want to give you the opportunity to be like this is what, what how, how do you feel about multiple maniacs and mink in particular in this one actually <laughs> Well, I, I mean, like you say, I love all of the movies, but Multiple Maniacs, I think, is the first one um, for me where the John's uh, obsession with um, sacrilege yeah. really spoke to me, you know, and the, and the sacrilege <laughs> in Multiple Maniacs is, in, in many ways, I think, is unparalleled. And yeah. it's the best example of sacrilege of any of his films. Um, of course, sacrilege plays out through his whole career in, in, in many ways. But there is a famous scene in the movie, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but it's kind of, I think, the, 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 the sort of fan, most fantastic part of the film where Divine and Mink are in a church and uh, they're shooting in a real church in Baltimore and Mink is giving Divine a rosary job. Uh, so, you know, it's, she's putting a rosary up Divine's ass and, and, and pulling it out like, you know, anal beads, uh, while Divine fantasizes about the Stations of the Cross and sexualizes <laughs> the Stations of the Cross. And that, like, that alone, <laughs> that moment, like, that to me is cinema genius. As a yeah. young Catholic Not school boy. Say, <laughs> right. Exactly. You were just like, thank you. Finally. <laughs> It blew my mind. Yeah, I it bet. totally blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, there's yeah. another iconic moment in which uh, Divine is raped by a lobster. Uh, which yes. The uh, Waters gained the inspiration from seaside postcards and kept the giant lobster suit for years before finally deciding it was taking up too much space <laughs> and setting it free in the harbour for a burial at sea. <laughs> so happy ending for the lobster. So, understandably, uh, potentially, it was denied an official theatrical run because of the censorship board. I mean, come on, guys. Uh, Wood just said that the person responsible for reviewing the film's eligibility for release cried at the Rosemary job. 
Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And uh, and it and they, they, they toured it around the States unofficially in non-theatrical venues, obviously, including churches. I mean, isn't that just, could anything be more fantastically punk rock? No. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Impossible. And, and, the, and the story, and we're, I'm not even mentioning that, like, there's a random cutaway of someone shooting up heroin on the altar of this church. Like, yes. that's part of this whole, you know, fever dream. And, um, you know, the way they did it was John lied to the priest about what they were filming and could they use the church? And I, I don't remember what the actual lie was, but you know, it was like that they had these good intentions and, but fully knowing they were going to sneak divine and sneak Minken in costume. And this guy, this friend of theirs to shoot up heroin, like what, okay. you know? And so, so it's not just the, the, the celluloid, images themselves but then the story for me a kid growing up in maryland um you know and for a long long time john would not um what's the word identify what church that was because yeah because uh i think he felt loyalty you know i think he felt bad about what he had you know that he had manipulated this priest into letting them shoot there and so they never he never said i mean i'm sure people in baltimore could recognize it or identify it but he never made it part of his story to identify the church Mm. that's really lovely that's, that's yeah. really kind. Yeah. He let well. us film that. <laughs> he let us film there. I will honor yeah. my commitment to yeah, keeping his identity. Given. I think that's really gorgeous. He said he was going to shoot there, and they did. So well, you know. <laughs> yeah, and and what, Mink herself uh, in that movie plays a lady who lives in the church or mm. lives in churches, and they call her the church lady, which I love because it's this idea of this person who's squatting in churches because yeah. you know you can go to a church and hang out. You know they're open. Um, and so Divine at one point asks her, like, well, where do you get your money? And she says, well, from the poor box, you know, <laughs> and Divine's like, isn't that stealing? And Mink says, well, it says poor and I'm poor. <laughs> and I just love the logic there. It's like, yeah, that does actually kind of make, sense. make sense. Like, why, yeah. why, you know, yeah, it, it is it's a poor box for the poor. But that is one of my favorite moments when it's Mink incredible. kind of says, like, well, hello, you know. <laughs> That's there for. <laughs> Mick's got this amazing um, on stage, uh, on screen, kept look for me as well, because she's got this little slightly upturned nose that makes her look kind of really mischievous, but then these great big wide eyes. So it's like this lovely interplay between complete naivety and then like absolutely knowing exactly what she's doing. It's so powerful yeah. on screen. And, and the two and of them. And they were babies. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. They were really, really young. So they're playing older women. Yeah. But we have to remember, like, these are 20-year-olds or whatever they were when they made yeah, that. They're yeah. very, very young. And, you know, it's to watch when people talk about the acting being bad in a John Waters movie, I, I really get defensive because I'm like, you know what? This, these performances, not only have they stood the test of time, mm. but, like, look at Mink and Divine's chemistry in that yeah. movie. Mm. And then look at where they take it. And that, you know, in the next one, Pink Flamingos, and and how, you know, Divine is larger than life. And then you've got a woman who has to match her, yeah. you know, in, in this sort of insane way. I mean, I really admire them both. And they worked, they were such good, you know, foils for each other and, and such an odd couple in a yeah. way, you know. Yeah. Um, and I and I wish that because of course in Female Trouble they have a great chemistry yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and then and then the rest of the movies, you know, they sort of you know 
they, they don't work as closely together. And I think it's one of the, the I, for me personally, as a John Waters and Divine super fan, I would have loved to have seen Divine and Mink maybe do one more movie, yeah. you know, where they, they, the two of them were either at each other's throats or playing mother and daughter or yeah. whatever, because their chemistry, when you look at those movies, wow. You Absolutely. Know. And it's that understanding that comes through those films as well, isn't it? They're, if you're looking for a traditional sense of like what is good acting or what yeah. is good like if you're looking if you're looking for Daniel Day-Lewis you're not going to get it but like what John Waters seems to understand is that there is such a thing as like on-screen energy or yeah. chemistry and and those things like you're saying like the chemistry between the two of them or just like Divine's supreme comic chops like you don't <laughs> oh. have to be this like incredible but to just know how to sell something yeah. just know how to like just do what you're doing on the screen and the the, the camera will do the rest and yeah. you just you're what it's picking up is what you have naturally and it's mm. yeah like it's 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 a complete misnomer to say like there's bad acting yeah. it's just like, and people do yeah. say it all the time you just get like i don't think you understand then no you don't get it yeah no. yeah bad acting to me is is when a performer's not committed yeah mm. and if nothing else yeah those two those two in those movies they are committed right. to every Absolutely. moment they're committed to John. They're committed to the world that they they inhabit, and that's why we now see people wear tattoos of them yeah. and you know screen these movies all these years mm-hmm. later. So it's like whatever you want to say about you know good acting or bad acting, it's like yep. Mink and Divine did something extraordinary, and yeah. and John. And yeah. when, what I love is the times where maybe one of them sort of wasn't as committed to one of his in crazy ideas and you know that's when you know um things went awry right (laughs) i will accept no substitutes yeah exactly just like i see you're uh, moving to south america and being a cobbler daniel day lewis and i raise you a rosary job exactly (laughs) yeah so john actually moved to san francisco at this point before making his next film and befriended the theater owner who ran the palace where the coquettes performed um, for those not in the know, Peaches, could you give us a bit of background on the Coquettes? Sure. They were uh, this fantastic, um, well, I guess you would call them hippies, although yeah. they, I don't think they would call themselves that, you know, but I think the way we would see them today is sort of hippies, but they were they were actually kind of these punk renegade um, performers who who weren't as, like, as hippie as it might seem uh, to the, the for the look of them, because instead of, you know, doing... Um, uh, you know, peaceful marches against the war, they were, you know, creating fantastic drag looks and getting, you know, uh, high on, you know, mushrooms and acid yeah. and putting on shows uh, at the Palace Theater in North Beach in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so they were, um, and they also lived in a commune. So they lived together as well. And they were this drag troupe that was inclusive of anyone. Yeah. So you have, you know, um, people of all different races, uh, people of all different ages, as well as people of all different genders. They had yeah. cis women that were part of the, the troupe um, and uh, cis men, gay men, straight men. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, a straight couple, a baby was born yeah. while, you know, while the coquettes were a thing, you know, between a man and a woman. And uh, they had trans women and trans men and, you know, Sylvester was part of the mm-hmm. coquettes. So it really was, and this is what where I like to start with my um, history of drag in San Francisco was like, you know, the coquettes sort of set the stage for generations of us to come afterwards. Uh-huh. So we never questioned 
the idea of a woman doing drag. We never questioned the idea of a bearded drag queen. This had all been done in the <laughs> late 60s. And we're all the children of these things. Yeah. So in many ways, I think when looking at drag trailblazers, the coquettes are so underrated. Mm. And, and of course, you know, you have the coquettes in San Francisco who were also making short films, yeah. who are also making short films, mm. parodying real life events. The Nixon wedding. That were happening in real time. And so you have them, they, you have San Francisco coquettes and then you have the Baltimore Dreamlanders. So you've got these two forces you know, who, no internet, yeah, no, you know, yeah. all through word of mouth. It's all through letter writing. It's all through, you know, storytelling. And so the fact that John and the Dreamlanders and the Coquettes finally converged is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, and they did, and they, and they actually worked together for a while. And the Coquettes are very short lived, yeah. you know, their history is, is very short-lived and I really recommend to any of the listeners who want to know more uh, that they, they check out the fantastic documentary, The Cockettes. Oh, Cockets. it's so good, and, yeah. Yeah, we'll and, put and that, will, that will kind of fill you in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fantastic sort of account of it all, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I just love the yeah, the organized chaos of it. And it, it's, it, it's a real marriage of equals, isn't it? It's like, and and they fly up, they fly divine over, the Cockettes meet her at the airport and I'm just like, give, give him the, the hero's welcome, which is deserved yeah. because it had been such a big hit on the, on the midnight movie circuit for them. Like it's, it's yeah. incredible. Like it must, yeah, I would have loved to have been, <laughs> to have been on the gangway when divine came down. It would have been absolutely amazing. Um, and yeah, John- I mean, that's, that's, you know, very like people have to picture that. Yeah. Divine got in drag in Maryland, boarded a plane <laughs> in full as divine yeah. in what, 1969, 1970, I think yeah. it was. No, I mean, what? <laughs> I would be nervous to do that today. Flies to San Francisco where the Coquettes in drag are at SFO on the tarmac ready to greet her. And John often describes it as the moment that she uh, left Glenn in Maryland. And you know, when she arrived in San Francisco as Mm. divine in drag, yes, she would take off the drag and she would be Glenn, but she was now divine. Yeah, You know, this was the moment where she realized she was divine. This wasn't just a movie thing. Mm. She was now divine. And I love that story. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's really, it's got really big fairy tale energy, hasn't it? Like (laughs) I've emerged, I'm here. Um, And And I love the stories of like what they would do before the screenings. John would introduce you, the most beautiful woman in the world. Divine would come out, throw fish in the audience, rip phone books in half. And then the fake cops would come, pretend to arrest them. They'd strangle the cops. And then the movie would start. I'd be like, we've had a show already, but no. It's like drag meets Scooby-Doo meets James Brown show. Like it's sort of like just doing all that stuff. Like show business meets like queer art. And it's just, oh God. Throw it all the walls. I wish I could have seen it. I know, right? And a lot of people, um, the the origin story for my show Midnight Mass is mm. exactly that. Like there mm. is no, there was no coincidence. You know, I met John when I was a senior in college. I was already an obsessed fan. I was hanging on his every word. And John said, "Where are you going to move?" And I said, "Did I? I don't know if I talked about no, this." No, 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 no. Go on. So, no. And I said, "Well, I'm going to graduate from film school. I'm making this movie, Jizz Mopper, and I'm going to move to New York or L.A." And he kind of looked at me like. Hmm. Well, have you thought about San Francisco? Yeah. And you know, it was John Waters who put this 
idea in my head. The Coquettes documentary had not been made yet. So I had read about the Coquettes in his book, Shock Value, but you know, he doesn't go into great detail. So it, it was at this lunch that he started to tell me stories about the Coquettes in San Francisco and the Kuchar brothers and basically saying the kind of filmmaker you are, you might want to go to San Francisco first and then go to New York or LA. And um, and I did. And and then, uh, you know, I created Midnight Mass Amazing. and Midnight Mass was completely my interpretation of what they had done. Yeah. Now, Coquettes would eventually come and see my show and John would come and see my show. And and I would think, oh, my God, I'm, I'm so honored you're here. And they would say, yeah, this is this isn't really like what we did because you guys you know, like you guys actually think about it. <laughs> you, know, you know, like, so I, I mean, and we were a mess. Like my shows were a mess. Oh, so you thought. So I, I like get the sense that when, when they talk about the Coquette shows just being a train wreck of pandemonium, like it's not just, you know, uh, uh, alliteration. Like this is yeah. really, when I talk to them, it's like, oh no, I guess they were all just fucking insane. Yeah. You know, the audience <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Incredible. How can you top that? Well, I'll tell you, it's Pink Flamingo's time. <laughs> Listener, if you've not seen it, you probably know that it's the one in which Divine eats a hot, fresh dog turd. <laughs> but there is so, so much more to it. Uh, it simply does not get more iconic than Divine as Babs Johnson, the filthiest woman alive. <laughs> Peaches, I I just I hand over to you. Just what does it pink mean? Flamingos, what does it mean to you? Well, it is sort of the watershed moment, I think, for midnight movies. You know, I mm. think um, Rocky Horror uh, really gets its credit for sure, and I love Rocky Horror. Mm. Um, I think what Pink Flamingos does is it balances Rocky really well. Like yeah. Rocky was a midnight movie that came out of a studio and from Hollywood. And, and and is transgressive and subversive with what it got away with um, in that way. And Pink Flamingos, of course, came from the dirty backwoods of Baltimore um, out of nowhere from a group of people pretending to be a studio um, and making this midnight movie. And I think what P- Pink Flamingos really does is it takes true and honest shock value and, and just kind of insanity and absurdity and, and, basically places it on screen in a way that's like you really shouldn't enjoy this at any time other than midnight you know like it's like it is the mother of all midnight movies yeah only the dirtiest people should be sneaking out to see this you know and uh and it feels dirty and to this day i think of all of his films and of all the midnight movies i know and and i screen uh, it has both that grit of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you feel like you're watching something like scary and dirty in yeah. some ways. Um, and the the sort of shock value that holds up decades later. Yeah. You know, uh, so, so, you know, what was shocking then obviously was the dog poop. And I think today we're not as shocked by that because of things like Jackass and yeah. Fear Factor and, you know, th- these sorts of things. But, you know, stuff like, um, you know, uh, a son 
getting a blowjob from his mother, that is still effectively yeah. shocking. Or, you know, it's women being held captive to be inseminated <laughs> by the butler, to be, you know, so their babies can be sold to lesbians. Like conceptually, that is so upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you notice when you screen them? Because a lot lot of the contemporaneous accounts are like people, oh my God, you're going to be sick. Oh my God, it's so great. You've got to get through Pink Flamingos. When you screen it, do you, uh, people obviously probably know if they've not seen it before, they're like, okay, there's the bit with the dog poo. But do you hear like the, (gasps) and the, like, do you, is it quite a visceral experience? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, at Midnight Mass, of course, I think people showed up and knew what they were getting. And we would, we, our traditional show, was to do a parody of American Idol, which was brand new. I mean, this yeah. is how long ago we started. American Idol had just come out. It was um, very successful. And we would do a show called Filth Idol. And I would advertise it in the papers. And we would have auditions. And we would have board members. And we would have people in the Bay Area come and do the most disgusting things they could <laughs> and compete to be you know, the filthiest person alive. Amazing. And I'll say that people did some really disgusting things. And to see them... <laughs> You know, to see them acted out on stage in front of you and to smell them as well. I mean, oh you know, God. I'll never forget the entire auditorium smelling like human poop, you know, because someone <laughs> took a shit on the stage. Um, you know, and then screening Pink Flamingos um, is a fabulous, wonderful thing. And the audience is just going nuts for it. But that is a converted cult. Yeah. That's a cult of people who know what they're buying, know what they're in for. <laughs> They've come to see it. They're worshiping it now screening it as a professor at San Francisco Art Institute uh-huh. for a group of students who are, you know, a little more precious and have been, you know, you think in many ways, well, you've grown up with the internet. You, you, well, they, you know, these are people who want trigger warnings. They want, um, mm-hmm. you know, they want their hand to be held through things. And, you know, this class that I taught, it was a cult cinema class. Um, and I actually did not show Pink Flamingos and my, uh, I did two classes in my um, drag uh, history in cinema. I did a show, a class called Girls on Film, where we studied drag performance in cinema, uh, and I would show female trouble. Then I did a class called Cult Cinema in the City, and it was about how different cult movies could only come from certain places. And we studied the actual city in relationship to the cult movie, and we did Pink Flamingos with Baltimore. Um, and the whole class had a trigger warning. And so these kids could totally handle George Romero. They could handle, you know, anything they could handle. They could handle Clockwork Orange, you know, I mean, so we're talking hardcore, right? Yeah, Yeah. yeah. And we get to Pink Flamingos and they are upset. I mean, this is the movie, (laughs) this is the movie. And I'm shocked because I'm not, you know, I'm coming from the world of of fun midnight movies, the converted cult. No, this was a thing. They were upset. Upset in a disgusted uh, way or an outraged way or both? um, Upset that it challenged their, I think, sense of what is okay, Mm -hmm. you know? And a a big, big part of it was the chicken fucking. Um, So that scene in particular really upset them. They really hadn't seen an animal, you know, die on screen before, you know, because you see the chicken's head kind of tear off and there's chicken blood. And for the audience that hasn't seen the movie, this does exist in there. So I don't think it was the dog poop as much as this other stuff. Maybe they're all poultry farmers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, these, again, 
I mean, I hate to say it, and I'll probably, you know, if anyone listens to this who who was a student there, uh, they might not like me characterizing them this way, but this was a very expensive fon, fon, fon. It's the San Francisco right. artist. Yeah. yeah, right. And so, you know, most of the students, you know, had the m- amounts of money to get into the school. Yeah. And so it was just an interesting thing that as young artists, yeah. you know, Pink yeah. Flamingos, and I'll tell you what, I had great pleasure telling John that. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> and it's saying your movie, and I would list all the movies, but your movie is the one that got me in trouble, you know? So, uh, you know, it, it holds up. It yeah. really holds up. Oh, I bet he was yeah. thrilled. I bet he was absolutely thrilled by that. I think he's very proud of it, you he's, know? I don't need to make any more movies. I've succeeded. I, no, I've done that. <laughs> I mean, I, I had a quote from a film lecturer called Gary Needham who said that it, it it pushes back against the liberation era gay politics of the 1970s, which were about being nice and fitting in. And it anticipates right. the radical queer politics of the 1990s, which were about a refusal to assimilate. I think that, that chimes with, with what we were speaking about last time we, we got together, actually, about um, the sweater gays and that kind of feeling of, no, no, we, we must conform. Stop, stop making us look like freaks. And this film being the, the boldness of that going, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> this is what's happening. And that for yeah. those, those students being something that they, they don't quite know where they sit in terms of because their, their politics are kind of not, not one or the other, maybe. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Elizabeth Coffey Williams, who uh-huh. you may remember, you know, from Pink Flamingos yeah. as the trans woman who flashes her penis at David Lockery. Yeah. And, you know, even that, because of trans politics today, right. they couldn't, you know, as students, they couldn't, they couldn't just laugh at it. You know, it was like this. And I was talking to Elizabeth about it and she was saying, yeah, it was, you know, all of that was so in many ways simple. They did not, you know, they did not anticipate that it would be something they'd be talking about all these years later. Um, How this is what they say. However, I do think that maybe John (laughs) anticipated it. Do you know what I mean? Like someone had to know that this was all going to come together, you know, and and make something special. Yeah. And then there is a sense, isn't there? I think maybe because I don't know if it's a kind of cultural thing, because we know it's the the one where where everything ramps up a bit for them in terms of fame. But I wonder how aware he was of that at the time going, this is, this is it. Like we're cresting a wave here. Something's happening. I get the sense that he did know because of the way he talks about really putting himself out there and borrowing the money from his father. Yeah. And, right. you know, I think in that way, if you read behind the scenes, he really, he really invested a lot in, yeah. in, in, in believed in this movie a lot. And, and you look at it and you can see that commitment on screen in Divine's costuming, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the whole confidence with which it's presented. I mean, if you look at Divine and Van Smith and what mm. they did in that movie, you know, and how, how elevated it is, um, there's just so many, and there's wonderful tidbits. Again, we could do the whole show on Pink Flamingos. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but you know, John and Mink, they were living in the uh, Connie Marble house. No. That was their house. Oh my yeah, God. they were roommates. And that was their house. So when you see like the movie posters on the wall, like from Boom and stuff, yeah. from that's those are John's movie posters. Like they they shot in the house where Mink and John were living. Oh you know, so because they were roommates at the time, and you know they and they bought that trailer and they burnt it down, and you know, and that's the movie where um, D- you know John asked Divine to do all of these things, and 
including eating dog shit. And she did. And, but Mink and John, they had a real, uh, thing because he asked Mink to, uh, set her hair on fire and, and she wouldn't do it. And it, you know, they, they, that was the line. <laughs> There was a lot of tension there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And she's like, to this day, she's like, he fucking asked me to <laughs> set my hair on fire on, you know, on film. Amazing. And he finally found the line. That's it. That's it. That's what I want yeah. to do. That's makes line. You can't yeah. cross that And he one. was 100% serious, oh you know. Oh, God. I bet he was. Good Lord. Watching that, getting to watch that movie with Mink more than once because we've done these shows together, these screenings. Yeah. Um, and getting her sort of personal commentary is, it's like, I, I'm a, a dream come true. Because cool. yeah. every scene, she has some story or tidbit or something, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. I've got some of the titles of the, the shows that um, Mink and Divine were doing with the coquettes. Uh, Divine and her stimulating studs. Divine saves the world. Vice Palace. Journey to the center of Uranus, which is obviously a joke which RuPaul has had a lot of mileage out of and and the yeah. heartbreak of psoriasis which i think is just the funniest title i've ever heard yes <laughs> i mean and that's what we were saying earlier actually about how enmeshed mink is in this part of the story and i was just thinking yeah, yeah just, i just i really love what you said earlier about i wish they'd done one more film where they were a double act because obviously flashing forward a little bit we've got loads to talk about before but like i don't think i don't think that her and divine even have a scene together in hairspray like I can't think of one. I think they're in the same, no, in the same and, room at the no, same time. But Yeah, I think, and that was a hard shoot for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can, we'll, 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 I guess we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll, yeah. get there. well, obviously <laughs> then came Female Trouble in 1974, yeah. an undeniable star vehicle yeah. for Divine. Back in Liz Taylor-inspired drag as the iconic Dawn Davenport. <laughs> this was Divine's favourite of her films, not least because she got to play the gloriously delinquent Dawn, but also the oafish predator Earl, who rapes Dawn, allowing her to always have the comeback quip to go fuck yourself, I already did. <laughs> Yeah. Can you understand what, like, why was her preferred role? What was the, can you understand that? And I mean, what is the. I think female trouble is a lot of our, when I say our, I'll say the, the, the cult of John Waters fans. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a lot of our favorites, myself right. included. And, and I think part of it's that this divine character, this is sort of the penultimate uh, creation, Dawn mm -hmm. Davenport. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of divine from Mondo Trasho. It's yeah. a little bit of divine from Multiple Maniacs. It's a little bit of divine from um, Pink Flamingos. And you see all this heavy lifting come to fruition with this epic character who you get to meet when she's a teenager, yeah. and then you know go on this journey with through her life. You know, it's like it's like a it's a it's a big journey film. It's not just a snapshot. You know, yeah. she grows. You know, she grows. You know, it's ego run wild, and yeah. you get to watch this this brat teenager, this, you know, bitch become this monster. Yeah. And, uh, and you love her, you know, you just love her so much, you know, and you love her journey and the Earl Peterson stuff, the inside yeah. jokes and Mink as her daughter rather than her foil who becomes her foil, you know, her yeah. daughter who, who is the thorn in her side. It's just like a perfect movie. It's just yeah. so perfect. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, how often, how how many films actually do you get to see a character arc like that? Mm. Like n n many, I can think of probably with like 
cis straight guys playing, you know, doing kind of a journeyman epic. Yeah, like Bilden's Roman. Yeah, exactly. Like sort of but right. it's just like from, from being a snotty teen to the deal electric chair. Like, not there aren't that many parts out right. there like this. Yeah. It's it's her Mildred Pierce. Yes, you know, it is. It, it, yeah. It, it's like it's Divine's. This is, you know, if there were Academy Awards given for cult movies, this would be the movie where she won every Oscar, you yeah. know? And, you know, it's just, and I mean, talk about costuming and makeup. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the iconic red dress that they do in Pink Flamingos was the standout, obviously, for Pink Flamingos, yeah. the fishtail dress. Yeah. But in Female Trouble, every time she's on screen, yeah. whether it's a negligee or a bra or, you know, a high school, you know, a, a pencil skirt and a sweater, you know, it's like every outfit, that that gloved, the sleeve that yes. Van Smith did, the leopard print, it is a fashion show, yeah. you know, and the makeup and the hair, and she gets the acid on her face. It's just, yeah. you know, it's perfection. Yeah. You know? So it's, it really is this fully realized cinema experience that is all in support of Divine and Divine's yes. performance. Yeah, and a brilliant querying of, of like certain kind of tropes of heightened female sexuality, like leopard, leopard print and, and, and gloves and things, and just taking it and turning it up, turning the dial up again. You're, you're right, it's, so, yeah, absolutely beautiful. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and the dialogue. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. it. I mean, Pink Flamingos definitely has that dialogue where it's just like, oh my God, it's so great. You know, there's yeah. so many funny lines. Zingers, yeah. And then Female Trouble takes it and it's like every single line yeah. in Female Trouble is, you know, quote worthy. Like all of them, Edith Massey's lines, Divine's lines, Mink Stoll's lines. Like, yeah. wow. You yeah. know, the, the writing, the script is just so perfect. Yeah. I wonder, has John ever shared anything with you about, about the process of writing that? Was it, a, did it feel different, do you think, or...? No, I, I mean, you know, it's funny. I don't think we've really talked about female trouble that much. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's maybe maybe because it's the holy grail for me or something. I don't yeah, think maybe. I've. You know, when you go to his house, you know, you walk in the foyer and there's the electric chair. You know, like right when you walk in. And so I'm always I always have to take a moment and kind of like pay my respects. And it's funny because seeing it in person, it's not as big as I would think it would be. Yeah. You know, which makes me realize like I don't think Divine, especially in um, Pink Flamingos, Mondo Trasho, Multiple Maniacs, and Female Trouble, is quite as big as people think she is. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, now she's not very very big, right? Yeah. Like in hairspray and stuff, but. And, and even polyester, but like, you know, I looked at that electric chair, I'm like, it's really not that big, That's you know? That's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, a holy relic. <laughs> uh, so after yes. dying in that particular electric chair as Dawn, Devine's next role was on the other side of the law as the prison matron in Tom Aylin's comedy play, Women Behind Bars, which proved to be a big off-Broadway hit during the great and good downtown. Its London transfer wasn't so successful, but it was an opportunity for Divine to forge a long uh, lifetime relationship with the fabulous Sandra Rhodes and evidence of her international standing. Yeah, get get that stage work. Um, and Aylan wrote another part for Divine in The Neon Woman, a story set in 1962 featuring Divine as Flash Storm, the female owner of a Baltimore strip club. It played at the Hurrah Club in New York City before moving on to the Alcazar Theatre in San Francisco and got the seal of approval from performances attended by none other than Eartha Kitt. Elton, welcome to Showbiz John, and the mothership, Liza Minnelli. Uh, Liza, yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> I, w I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that. I, I imagine they met. They must have met. 
I bet like she went live. Studio, studio Fifty Four, they would have. Yeah. Each other, oh, of course they would have yeah, been Studio Fifty Four. So. Yeah. Oh, incredible. <laughs> So, from 1979, at the suggestion of new agent Bernard Jay, Divine starts appearing in clubs in Fort Lauderdale. This is where he first brought disco into the act, with Born to be Cheap in 1981. Um, Peaches, what's your impression of what this Fort Lauderdale act was like? Well, I have to say, I, I think a lot of that uh, music is way ahead of its time. Yeah. Like, yes. When you, yes, when you listen to those Divine records, that old bathhouse disco, and you listen to the techno and the electronic beats, and it's like, I can't believe how ahead of its time it was. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's so good. It it's is really so good. good. Yeah. So, I, you know, any queer or anyone, but I know I meet these, you know, older men who will be like, I saw Divine at the I Beam, or I saw Divine at the, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> yes. because, you know, I mean, not only is the music great, but then it's led by Divine. It doesn't matter that she didn't have the best singing voice or whatever. Who cares? Yeah. The beat and the disco music, it just was great. Yeah. Those records are fabulous. That's bringing punk to disco as well, isn't yeah. it? It's that thing of going like, yeah, totally. it's not about the voice. It's Absolutely. about the energy. It's about the persona. It's about what I bring to the mic, basically. Yeah. He, he can hold a tune as well. Like, it's not like he's like, ow. Good. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good. No. Yeah. But we, you used to do, like disco in that yeah, era and being like, well, great. Sylvester think... or someone with well, a great, yeah. you know, right. incredible voice. Yeah, he's like... not Donna Summer. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's still like the music is very well produced. Yeah. And, you know, I love the album art, you know. Yes. And it's like, you know, so my partner, uh, Nihat, he loves vinyl, so he's been collecting like every time he can get a new Divine. Oh, so we have all these different versions of all the, the Divine records, and so we put them on sometimes, and it's like, this is incredible music. Yeah, you know, it's really good. Yeah, is that digging them out in in like record shops and stuff, or are they coming? Are they re-releasing them? I don't know where the records are. No, he finds them, them in old record shops, you know, and yeah. uh, online and stuff yeah. like that. Amazing. So no, they haven't been re-released. Oh. And, and around the same time, we, we the, the, the Divine and Edith Massey in the early 80s did a series of greeting cards. And uh, so we've started collecting those as well. Like these oh bizarre, God. you know, you've probably seen the images of Divine like dressed with like uh, an American flag around yeah, her. Yeah, the Fourth yeah. of July and stuff like that. So they were all from these greeting card campaigns that were actually created. They were shot in San Francisco. Oh so God. we'll sometimes find these things like stacks of these old cards that weren't sold and so we've been kind of hoarding those as well oh that's amazing, amazing. He, he obviously really yeah. gravitated to greetings cards isn't he because that's what he was sending to his postcards, postcards to his family like I right was, oh wow. i wonder if they ever got one with him on it <laughs> i don't know probably i'm sure at some point yeah, yeah. i mean i should we're gonna we must keep an eye out for um british imprints and things that we can send to you if we find any of the vinyl that like with a british version of it we'll oh, i'll fantastic. put it to one side and send it over So, um, 1981, we've got Polyester. Uncharacteristically mm -hmm. meek, this performance, but obviously against former matinee idol Tab Hunter. Like, what do you yeah. think about that casting? That's pretty, pretty amazing. I think the idea of John Waters doing a melodrama <laughs> uh, and setting it in suburban America, I think now looking back on that yeah. and the William Castle gimmick of Odorama and taking Divine and and making her uh, a character that's so different from the Divine character was 
really radical, yeah. really risky and brilliant because yeah. it really, I think a lot of people talk about the shift being from um, polyester to hairspray, but really I think the real shift is from female trouble to polyester because yeah. this is where they said, okay, this insane divine ludicrous, you know, glamazonian creature. Yeah. We've, we've brought her to the pinnacle of what she can do. What's next? Oh, let's make her an actress. And she's going to really play a character. So it's divine as Francine Fishpaul, yeah. not divine playing divine, you know, the way yeah, she did yeah, as yeah. Don Davenport or Pat Johnson. And, uh, you know, it's just genius. Yeah. And, and I, it's so special like that polyester movie there's there's just something so specifically wonderfully special about it of course the sweetness of a matinee idol like tab hunter agreeing at the time that he agreed yeah. as a closeted gay man to be in a movie with divine yeah tab hunter wow you Amazing. know like what a cool brave thing to do you know everyone in his camp was telling him don't, don't do this yeah you know, yeah. and playing it and so straight as well, like just looking straight down the lens yeah. and being just tr treating it with the, the gravitas that he does is amazing. Yeah. That is absolutely necessary to make it work. Yeah, it's exactly. It's got to be yeah. done completely po-faced in that sense. Yeah, and 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 her as well, which is yeah. really interesting. Like you know, Francine is so tragic and believably tragic. You know, that you really do, you really feel bad for her mm. the way her husband treats her and the way her kids treat her and you know divine yes it's hilarious but she also she she toes the line well enough where you you care yeah, yeah definitely mm. and the use of odorama which is amazing scratch and yeah. sniff cards for the audience to smell i mean that fuck 3d bring back that that's incredible <laughs> no i'm i'm very proud of the fact that we presented uh, polyester in Odorama at Midnight Mass. Oh my gosh. Three times. Yeah. So, you know, and it really works when every, when you've got hundreds of people in, a, in an enclosed auditorium scratching at the same time, it fills the air with that smell, you oh know. My so, God. It, are they the, it, it's very effective. Ones that you've, you've basically managed to dig out and like in terms of like piles of them from the old studios, or did you have to make new ones? So the thing about Midnight Mass that's really interesting is like I did it at the Bridge Theater uh, for 13 years. And the Bridge Theater is operated by Landmark Theaters. And Landmark Theaters is who distributed Pink Flamingos through for New Line. So John and Landmark Theaters have a very old relationship. The no smoking trailer of John smoking the cigarette, um, that was created at Landmark Theaters. I have three of them on 35 millimeter that I've, you know, kept. Oh uh, so, so I was able to access in the home office, uh, file cabinets of John's that were just left in a corner. And I had, you know, all these old pink flamingos posters, one of which I had framed, um, and stacks and stacks of original odorama cards. Oh uh, so we actually used the original cards <gasps> for our first two screenings and then um, IFC did a deal with New Line Cinema where the Independent Film Channel did a promotion and they recreated the cards. They were a little smaller and they recreated them and they did it as a promo oh. for a home screening, a home viewing. Oh, well, man. I called IFC and I said, do you have any leftovers? And they said, yes. And so they shipped me, shipped me a box. So I was able to get three 
screenings out of it. Now today, it would be a lot harder because I have 1,400 seats to fill at the yeah. Castro Theater. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I would need a new source. So if anybody yeah. out there <laughs> knows where I can get them, or maybe I just have to have make them myself or something with John's permission. Yeah, yeah. we're going to need to for Waters World anyway. So if we can put oh. some um, put some thought yeah. into that, yeah. And there think you about go. How many people yeah. are going to be coming through the doors of Waters yeah. World? You're going to need to we're really. Need you need a, a mass manufacturer. A production really. line. Yeah, that's what right. absolutely. <laughs> I will work on that production line for you. <laughs> yeah. So after the fallout with his parents, Divine had only kept in touch with them via postcards, as we mentioned, uh, which gave no forwarding address. These were published in 2011 in a collection titled Postcards from Divine. In the intervening years, his mother Frances had learned of his career after reading an article about John Waters in Life magazine. She'd also gone to see Female Trouble at the cinema, but didn't feel emotionally able to get in touch until 1981. A friend passed a note to Divine at a concert, as at this point the disco career was really ramping up again. It had even appeared on Top of the Pops, yeah, uh, repping for the Brits. And um, the relationship between the parents and son was good pretty much for the rest of their lives, I think. Yeah, she's really sweet in that documentary that you're in as well, Peaches. She comes across really well. Yeah, I feel like she... Yeah, thank you. She uh, anchors that film. I think that the whole movie really is, you know, the strength of the film is is through her story. And I I think their story is, uh, you know, tragic, but also very, very familiar. You know, I think a lot of Mm -hmm. queer kids have dealt with being rejected by their families mm. and then li- living hopefully long enough to then be accepted again. Yeah, yeah. It's a sad story, but I'm glad at least they got to the acceptance part. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, 1985, so Divine reunited with Tab Hunter for Lust in the Dust. <laughs> um, Roger Ebert only gave it two stars. In a review in which it must be noted, he refers to Divine as a transsexual. But other critics received it really warmly and praised Divine's performance as well. What, what do you think about Lust in the Dust, Peaches? Uh, you know, when I first was in my John Waters immersion phase, yeah. uh, I didn't really particularly care for it other than divine you yeah. know like I, everything divine does in the movie i was interested in and now it's maybe uh being a little more mature and realizing it's not a john waters film it's its own thing yeah. and and also learning more and understanding more about paul bartell mm-hmm. uh and and you know having uh, an appreciation for paul bartell yeah um i think it's an interesting i think it's a really interesting film and I wish we had more um, divine performances on film or television Mm. by different directors to kind of compare it to. And I think what's unfortunate about Lust in the Dust is it's like the one. It's this one thing that we have that's not directed by John or created by John for divine, but by someone else. And, And so I think we, I think it's, you know, it's disappointing because it's not a John Waters film. But yeah. I think if you can kind of look at it in its own regard and appreciate it, you know, there is, there is, there is substance there that's uh, satisfying, especially now watching it. You know, now it's like you, you realize how, you know, anything we have of Divine's is special. Yeah. yeah. But it's frustrating, isn't it, to only have what, one, like you said, one of those things, because mm. it just makes the whole comparison process, it all hinges on one thing, and you just can't, because yeah. it could have been, there's so many different yeah. things it could have been, and yeah, so yeah. I, it's just very tough to do that sort of thing. And I think for, for, yeah, I think for Divine as well, I think it's unfortunate, because I think uh, she and John were magic. I mean, yeah. obviously, just yeah. total magic. Um, but I also think she would have st- stood on her own 
just fine. And yeah. it, just like John was managed to pivot, you know, after losing Divine and still make very great movies. Yeah. You know, I think that, that those those great performances were in Divine, but we lost her, you know, just mm. too soon. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. so it's, yeah, it's unfortunate because I think, you know, is it the best movie? No. Uh, is it interesting? Yes. Yeah. Is Divine in it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, but I'm not even a fan of Westerns. Yeah. So, you know, it's already like, what, what Divine in a Western? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. What is this? Which in itself just makes it worth watching. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She looks fabulous as well. Um, yeah. Uh, um, and then we did have the, the male presenting role in Trouble in Mind, um, which, again, really interesting. I think, you know, he, he was a really good actor. I think you could see that in when, he, mm. when he does play other male presenting characters. You could you, you see the range, can't you? You can see the contrast, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And, of course, in, in Hairspray, 1988, he plays... Edna, but also plays a, ma- a man as well, which kind of right. kind of mafioso figure actually. He's, he's like the he's head of the of, network, isn't he? But he's, he's a got, sort of bureaucrat kind yeah, of. Yeah, he's kind of grotesque. Yeah. He's got those false teeth in and stuff, and yeah, I mean, he's like a yeah, he's a successful carny, which I would say is is mafia adjacent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. definitely amazing. Yeah. I mean, so she was originally supposed to play t- Tracy as well, which I didn't realize, and then the studio nixed that and put the amazing Ricky Lake in. I, how how do you feel it, about hairspray? So I think circling back, yeah. which I hate that phrase. No, no, do it. But <laughs> you know, we're going to circle back to what I was saying earlier about how hairspray is this amazing, brilliant film. I love it yeah. so much, and I love Ricky. Um, but I think, and, and I had no idea about any of this. And it also was my entrance into the world of John Waters because really? when they were filming that movie, we were aware that they were filming it. Okay. And it was the first time I really had any sense of John Waters. And it was because John was bringing stars to Baltimore. So it was on the news. Like this was like polyester wasn't in my, you know, I was too young. I didn't yeah. know about it. You know? But when they were filming um, Hairspray, it was on the local news because Debbie Harry was in town. Sonny Bono was in town. Pia Zadora was in town. This is that was a big deal for Baltimore um, to have a movie made with these people there. You know, besides John, there's Barry Levinson. Like, that's it. You know, there was no there's no filmmaking going on. Yeah. So uh, I first learned about. this idea of the mother being played by a man named divine through hairspray. So I will always personally have a a very strong affinity for it. I also think it's a flawless movie. I think it's a perfect film. It is. Yeah. Now being friends with mink, uh, I now know that it was a, it was a hard film because Mm. here mink is in a teeny tiny role and divine was supposed to play the lead Tracy, which is, so weird to think, but that's the way it was. Hmm. So for the two of them, it was a tough, challenging transition. Yeah. This was a bigger transition than the rest. And especially because the celebrities were there. Guess who had trailers? Guess who didn't? Ooh, you know, right. there were those things going on, oh, which wow. John was apologetic for. I mean, it wasn't like it was John's fault. You know, he was caught between a rock and a hard place as well. Yeah. When you're dealing with the studios and you're dealing with celebrities who have agents, yeah. You know, and you're dealing with your friends who you can maybe, you know, it, it was a really tough shoot for them emotionally. And that is why looking at that film now, I will forever say Divine was a fucking brilliant actor. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Because 
you would never know that she is anything other than a loving mother. And if you talk to Ricky, Ricky will tell you their relationship was strained at first. Yeah. You know, uh, Ricky, Ricky showed up on that set and divine definitely looked at her like you're my replacement. I mean, (laughs) Ricky's honest about it. And then, you know, over time, you know, divine taught Ricky how to walk in heels. Divine became her mother on stage and off. And it's just, it's a lovely, beautiful movie. And, and it's just even more special in a tragic way because it's our final yeah. Divine yeah, film. Um, and that's really like what, you know, that is, the, oh, I mean, she got, she got phenomenal reviews for that movie. Yeah. The world finally really got to see this is valid. This yeah. person can act, Yeah, you know? And that's yeah. so tragic, isn't it? So, like that's per- I love that movie. It's wonderful. And it remains the the biggest critical and commercial success of, of John Waters' career as well. And uh, as you were saying, Pauline uh, Pauline Kale praised mm-hmm. Divine specifically in the New Yorker, gave him a rave. So it's really Divine's movie. I mean, what how validating to finally get that, that that mm. to hear that and see that in yeah. print and be like, Yeah, it is my movie. And I'm not playing the lead, which I should be, yeah. but you know. <laughs> Yeah, that must have been that must have been sort of yeah validating as well, just yeah. to kind of to for, had to go through that process on set and then come off and it be released and then get all these notices be called the WC Fields and drag of like it's just kind of that must have been so valid to go yeah see like and to go to the premiere as well yeah which they both like John Waters and Divine oh. have both spoken about haven't they about how the magic of that moment and like this is where we were building towards. Yeah. yeah, they're at the Senator Theater in Baltimore. You can still go to the Senator Theater and, and you know, and enjoy an event there. And it is, you know, just so cool to see those old photos of them at the Hairspray premiere oh. in Baltimore with all the Hollywood celebrities, you know, and Divine there, out of drag, beaming yeah. with John. And, you know, they have this hit, a bona fide hit on their hands. And it's just like, you know, her death was just, it was just too soon. It was mm. too early. And, you know, speaking of her uh, playing men, you know, the the, the big um, next break for her was to become a series regular on Married with Children yeah. and to play a male persona. Um, and that's why she was in LA when she passed away. And so there's just all this sort of sadness Tragically, Divine was to make just one more movie, Out of the Dark, with the same crew as Lost in the Dust. Uh, He appears in just one scene as Detective Langella, a foul-mouthed policeman investigating the murders of a killer clown. Out of the Dark was posthumously released in 1989. So just three weeks after Hairspray's release and the Rapture's response in March 1988, Divine passed away in his sleep. He had had dinner with friends after spending all day rehearsing for a guest appearance on Married with Children, a major television breakout role which uh, was due to take the very next day, as Peaches mentioned. John Waters was one of the pallbearers at his funeral in Maryland, and Whoopi Goldberg sent a wreath featuring the message, see what happens when you get good reviews? (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So following the funeral, a tribute was held at the Baltimore governor's mansion and over the following weeks, the Internal Revenue Service confiscated many of Divine's possessions and auctioned them off as restitution for unpaid taxes. For fuck's sake, death and taxes. They're coming for you. Yeah. I mean, John and Mink, uh, one thing I will say, being close with them, is how chilling it is to see people remember their friend and to actually see... You know, this isn't, this is real. They they missed this person. Mm. And they didn't just lose Divine. You have to remember that Mink and John 
lost David Lockery yeah. Um, yeah. because of drugs. Uh, and they also lost a ton, an army of men mm. who had appeared on screen and behind the screen, you know, scenes um, because they were gay and they had, you know, succumbed to AIDS. Yeah. So there was just a ton of loss for mm. them, you know, at that time. So, you know, I mean, they talk about, you know, going to Provincetown was like going to a literal ghost town oh, because yeah. every clerk, every waiter, every friend of theirs was gone, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it, it, that that is a really dark period. That is um, But Hairspray is amazing. And, you know, and Hairspray is also the, the thing, uh, you know, I think John has talked about this publicly, so I hope I'm not, you know, revealing too much. But, you know, John... Uh, has made more money with hairspray on Broadway than if you took all of the profits from all of the films and combined them. No way. You know, no. So oh we mean, it, because when you make it to Broadway yeah. and you have ownership, mm -hmm. I mean, big ownership in this story, in this movie, in this product, and they're selling ticket after ticket. Yeah. You know, Broadway is like the ultimate gamble. It's like the stock market, right? When you lose, you lose big. Yeah. And when you win, you win big, yeah, right? Yes. And so now he owns a musical that, 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 that was a huge hit on Broadway, then around the world, and now is being licensed in every high school mm. across the world, yeah. you know? Um, so, you know, it's like that, that movie was the gift that gave John uh, a very comfortable, you know, lifestyle that, you know, where he, you know, movie making is really hard unless you're making the big giant popcorn movies, hmm. you know, for, for studio. It's not like you're really getting rich off indie yeah. films, yeah, you know, yeah. that's not reality. So it was really Hairspray was the gift, you know, because it turned into a Broadway musical. Oh. And what a bittersweet gift as well for yeah. that to be like divine, divine's defining moment and that, yeah. that kind of brilliantly criti like critically acclaimed performance anchoring that movie and everything that she does in that film, which is just fucking flawless. And then to lose him and, and for that to be that, that gift that has then sustained John in that way yeah. and given so much to him as well as his relationship with divine to yeah. have given him so much. And, yeah, just that moment of, of loss mixed with that moment of triumph. It's just, it's, it, yeah. I mean, you know, it is, in itself is a, is a Hollywood story, isn't it? But it's, yeah. That, that is, and that's the big question. You know, he has shut down everything uh, that has come his way, you know, uh, but someday someone will yeah. do the Dreamlander story. Yeah. You know, yes. and, and John is basically like, do it after I'm gone. Right. You know, he doesn't want, so it, it, I think people should respect those wishes, yeah. but it's like, this story is too amazing. Um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I, I think you could do, you could do a movie just on Mink. You could yes. do a movie just on Cookie Mueller. Yeah. You could do, you know, it's like every single <laughs> one of them could have their own biopic. Oh, you TV know? series, 100%. Oh high gosh. budget TV series, yeah. long running. That'd amazing. be amazing. From different perspectives. Yeah. yeah. It'd be great. Get Ryan Murphy. He's yeah. got nothing else on his slate, is he? <laughs> <laughs> he's not producing every other story. He's not busy. He's only working on 98 things. <laughs> yes. He needs to more. needs that century. <laughs> yeah. But a legend never really dies, and Divine's legacy will live on, grow, and continue to inspire others to be absolutely fucking fabulous.
Amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Peaches. It's just been an absolute delight to speak to you and twice as well. Thank you so much for giving us your time. And, and, and you're the wonderful. It's just been it's just been a joy from beginning to end. And I can't wait to run Waterworld with you. <laughs> and the, feeling, the feeling is mutual and we will we will follow up. We will circle back to Waters World. And, uh, yeah, we will we will make it happen. We will. We will. Is there anything else you'd like to plug as we do yeah. plugs and hugs? Anything else? Oh gosh. You know, because I've because I've really been focused on writing, um, I haven't been doing as much as far as shows and things go. Mm -hmm. But we did um, update uh, uh, our plans for my immersive attraction on our website. So if you want to kind of hear what's going on and read our little story, it's terrorvault.com. And then, uh, of course, you can um, find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And and now I've even you know figured out how to do a link tree so you can Click on that and find my merchandise and my, you know, all my little stuff. So if you're interested in in more about me, that's where to go. Thank you so Perfect. much. We love you, you so much and take yep, care. And if you ever love need you to give us any recommendations right. about who we can get in to do an episode on you, then yes, please do let us exactly. know who you want to talk. <laughs> and we'll okay, sure we I'll do think that. about it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Diva Energy. If you did and you want to reach out and have a chat, share your BDE stories with us, or tell us which diva means the most to you, you can tweet us at Diva Energy or email us at bigdivaenergypod at gmail.com. This podcast is a Dark Mutters production. If you thought we were not perverted pornographers, but instead artists, then don't forget to like and subscribe. Alternatively, if you think we were dog shit, then you can make like a giant lobster costume and get, get in, in the, the sea. sea. Bye. 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 Bye.